0: Habakkuk chapter 1 through verse 12. The burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves, their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand at kings. They scoff, and at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men, whose own might is their guide. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. The, Lord, the word of the Lord. And as we're told in Hebrews, the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of the one to whom we must give account. So we need his word. So the last time, we looked at Habakkuk's cry of of why and for how long as he started, and as he complains to God that God has made him see iniquity and wickedness, and yet God looks idly on, and then in God's response He says to him, as as Habakkuk had used these words, why do you make me look and see? And then God says, oh, look and see what I'm doing. Because he is not silent, and he is at work. And just because, as we said, looked at last week, the the apparent delay of judgment oftentimes is because judgment is being prepared. And God's inactivity over uh, what we see as evil, just because you can't see what he's doing doesn't mean he's not doing something, and so we have to be careful about how we see these things, and so with this, we have to, at this point, ask the question, you know, is anybody in here, you don't have to raise hands, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but have you ever had any personal problems, maybe one or two, um, maybe you've had a personal problem, maybe you've had a trial or trials, maybe you've had hardships in life, I know there may have been one or two of you of you here. Um, or have you ever just been confused about what you see about life and faith and, and how all this works? And I think a lot of this is what God means by uh, w- when we are firming up our faith, when we we are um, developing our faith, when we are correcting our faith. These things, our faith grows as we look at something. And it doesn't match up with what I believe. And so you have to say, well, either I'm seeing it wrong or I've been believing something wrong. And that's what drives us to worship and to his word, to be able to say, how do I, how do I come to terms with actuality, things I see in life, and then what I believe about what God has said in his word. And something has to, has to work together. And some in here may have had such hard things happen that you've even questioned God. I know many people, that have even been angry with God about the way things turn out and, and that things just don't add up. And then when you even think about, you know, my anger, my questioning, that adds to the anger and the confusion. And so it's very common for people who've grown up in certain types of Christian homes. Um, I've talked to people, you know, people not even necessarily in the church here but different Christians in different places as you hear something they're going through and they're mad at God or they're just you know they're stopped going to church or something like this and you talk to them and and just they hear they grew up hearing don't ever question God don't ever be angry at God and it seems to be rather freeing to a person to if you know to be able to hear it. it's like well who who <laughs> who else are you' going to be mad at at least you know the one who's in control of everything and questioning. Um, you're in good company. The prophets, the, the psalmist um, have often found themselves where it's like, Habakkuk, why? What is going on? I believe certain things about you. This can't be happening. Why do you make me look? Idle? Why do you make me see it? And then you, you certainly see, but you don't care. Why is this? And so we have a logical wisdom that would say, I see the way things work, and, and I know God's in control, and, and when you're counseling with a believer, it's oftentimes they, they counsel themselves as you're talking to them, it's almost like you would say, I know you already know this, I already know you know, and it's like, but we need to hear it again, we need to remember these things, they need to be brought back to our memories Again, because we are logical and wisdom is logical, but we're also emotional beings. God has created us as emotional beings. God himself expresses himself with emotions so that we can think what what is this, what is God like, what is he thinking? So we're made like him in some ways. He's not controlled by his emotions, whereas oftentimes we are controlled by our emotions. And so what we do is, We need to read the Bible and, again, see these psalmists, these prophets, and the apostles questioning God and complaining at times. All but Jesus. I'll get rid of this before I knock it down. Um, So Jesus, sinless life, perfect faith. And even Jesus, though, was pushed to his limits. As the time came for him to go to the cross... And he knows he has to endure the wrath and curse of God. And he, more than any other person, understood what that means. We might think, okay, we know that sinners apart from Christ are going to experience the wrath and curse of God. And we know about hell, and we know about eternity, and we have inklings that were given about it, but we don't really to the depth that Jesus did to understand the wrath and curse of God. Nor did we, do we have that close of an intimate relationship as we could have by the Holy Spirit, but that Jesus experienced personally knowing God, and then for him to go from that relationship to wrath and curse relationship was much harder for him. But he knew that was the purpose for which he came. He knew that the only way to provide a way to the Father was through this that he would experience, to bear the curse of God for his church, for those who would believe in him and call on his name for rescue, for for salvation from the wrath and curse of God, the debt of our sin, which we would have to pay forever. We can never repay the debt that we have incurred, but because Jesus' sacrifice is so valuable, that he paid the penalty once. And it was enough and it was finished. But he experienced an eternity of the wrath and curse of God on the cross. So that Jesus in the garden as he's about to go here. And it seems as the weight of the world's sins are beginning to be laid on him. As he's going to the cross. And he's in the heart of the earth, Jerusalem. And he's there. He's in the garden. And he's praying he even asked that if this cup could pass from me, let it. But then he resolves, but not my will, but thine be done. Because he knows in his person, what person in their right mind, in their right faith, would invite the wrath and curse of God upon them. Nobody. And he doesn't want the wrath and curse of God upon him. He doesn't want to be a curse. He do not want to be nasty. He doesn't want to be sin. There's no way. There's a way... No. And one of the purposes of this prayer, I'm convinced, is because Jesus prayed if there's another way, and there's no other way. If there was another way to heaven, then Jesus needed not to go through this. The cup could have passed. But it didn't, because it couldn't. And this is the only way. So he resolves not my will in the flesh, but thy will be done. And this is that resolution where he comes. And this is what we're looking for. And this is what Habakkuk finally finds. He gets this from this confusion and this anger, this like and, and Habakkuk apparently has been pleading with God. It's not like he suddenly just goes, Oh, look how bad this is. Why do you make me look? You know, it's like, no, it's this obviously he's been on his knees and he's pleading with people, pleading with but nobody is listening. And it seems even as, as if God is. So how do we get as Habakkuk does from that point to a position of of praise and trust? Just as Jesus did. Jesus went from confusion to resolve. And then on the cross, at the greatest point of his suffering, as the weight of the sin of the world's being laid upon his soul, and I'm also convinced that as awful as the physical Suffering on the cross was. We even get our word "excruciating" from the word for crucifixion. It's it's. It was designed by the Roman government to be so horrifically terrifying to the onlookers that nobody they would dare step out of line because that could happen to you. So it was terrible and it was awful. But even worse was the wrath and curse of God being laid and burned into Christ's soul as he was becoming sin for us on the cross. And as this weight of sin was being laid on his soul alone, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, even then, even then, it's easy to miss that he's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. And I like to also say, or as Martin Luther would point out, or is Psalm 22 quoting Christ? As outside of eternity, these things are being revealed, and he does cry from the cross, Psalm twenty-two, one, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" But then that psalm ends in verse thirty-one. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. So. Even Jesus' cry on the cross of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is not sinful. It's quoting a scripture of a psalm that he knows the reason he's doing it is to accomplish this for those yet undone so that even on the cross as he's seeing the forsakenness of God, he's clinging to the word of God that he knows so that he's trusting and remembering who God said he is and who God is even as he is experiencing the wrath and curse of God. Now, we've all experienced these trials and tribulations and stuff, but we're not, especially as believers, we are not experiencing the wrath and curse of God. That is removed from us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We experience the discipline of God, but it is complete love for the believer. And yet Jesus, and we feel... You know, why, you're tormenting me, you're punishing me, you're disciplining me in a way I don't like. You know, whatever it is that we're doing and we get angry with God, we can look at Jesus and how he pleads with the wrath and curse of God, and even that can bother us because it's like, I'm, I'm certainly not that good. I used to um, preach a sermon when I was in seminary. You get to go to different churches a lot, so I tried to, you know, I had my 21-minute and 30-second sermon. Yeah, you can do it. And that it was about um, Polycarp and how Polycarp was uh, one of the early church fathers. And he was, you know, one of, one of my uh, heroes, if you're going to call some church history guy, some hero. But he was just, um, the, the Roman government despised him. And I can't remember, was he 95 years old, something. I can't remember exactly how old he was, but he was elderly. And they decided, we're finally going to get Polycarp and we're going to burn him at the stake. And they go to get him, and they just, man, you know, he's, he's He's weak, and the soldiers go to get him, and he's like, can I pray first? So he prays a long time, which if you're being arrested, or you're about that something's going to happen, and you get you know, the ability to pray, hey, pray long. But even you know, as these people are praying, as he's praying, these guards are hearing, and, and, and so they don't want to do this. And they're like pleading, all you have to do is just say Caesar is Lord. That's all you got to do. Just say it. And he's like, how can I do that? I cannot deny my Lord for 80 and something, so he's maybe 80 something. The quote is, for 80 and some odd years, Um, I have served the Lord, and he has never denied me. I will not now deny him. It's a close quote. And so they take him, and he goes, and he's in front of all these, the the Colosseum, and they're there, and they're going to burn him at the stake, and they said, just say Caesar's Lord, and he "He won't do it. And the whole place is saying, Polycarp, Polycarp. They're ready for Polycarp to go down. And um, he says, all you got to say is just say, away with the atheists because the Christians were the atheists, because they only worship one God, not the whole pantheon of God. So they said, you know, just say away with the atheists. So he looks at the crowds and says, away with the atheists. And I was like, that's not what we're saying. So he's just, from the end, he's standing to the end. He's standing firm, and he is finally martyred. And there's stories about how difficult it was to light the fire and things like this, and who knows, but he stood his ground um, to the end. And so, in my sermon, I remember, I'd say, you know, we hear stories like this, and you think to yourself, I'm terrible, I'm just terrible, I'm not like Polycarp, I I could never do that, I don't even, it's like, you know, something breaks in my house, and I'm like, ready to give it in sometimes, so. More grace is given when things occur. Hopefully, maybe if something so big as that were to happen to us, that maybe there'd be enough grace for us to be able to stand and say, no, this has suddenly gotten you know, to be too much. But we can often just really give ourselves a hard time about how weak we are. And then here we are, weak as we are, but Christian believers. How are we to deal with the most difficult things in life? Holy Spirit-filled, born-again believers, paid for, redeemed, saved by God the Father Almighty by the work of Jesus Christ, His only Son, the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God to purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. How do we do that? How do we get from the confusion, the anger, the weak-feelingness to what would appear to be an amazing work of the Holy Spirit and an act of faith in our lives? How are we supposed to deal with our trials and tribulations? How are we to move from fear and confusion to praise and confidence? Then we do it the way we see Habakkuk will do it, the way Jesus did it, the way we see others have done it, which is by remembering who our God is. This remembering, even in the Lord's Supper, Do this in remembrance of me. So we remember who God is. Even in our shorter catechism. Who is God? It says what is God? It's like what is man? That kind of thing. What is God? God is a spirit. Infinite. Eternal. Unchangeable. In his being. Wisdom. Power. Holiness. Justice. Goodness. And truth. Same today, yesterday, and forever. So we had to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ for us. So look at Habakkuk chapter 12. Now he's not to the praise part yet, but he's on the way because he's remembering who he's talking to. And I think what he's doing here is as he's beginning the second prayer of complaint to God, he starts off as we should by, at least, at, who are you addressing? And we call it adoration because as you address God and who he is, there are praises of adoration. Or who his name is, so he's addressing the God, which reminds us who we are addressing. Are you not from everlasting? Is how he begins, and this is from where King David was bringing in the Ark of the Covenant to the Tabernacle, and all the people are there, and they're gathering for this big event. And he tells the people, he says, "Say this: Save us, O God, our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations." You hear that? So remember what's happening. Nations are coming in. And we want to be delivered. And David is saying to the people in in the beginning here, as they're starting to, the tabernacle is here, the king is here, and we're going to say this, save us, O God, our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen. And they raised up the hallelujahs. Praise the Lord. And so I'm sure Habakkuk is looking at this and he says, are you not from everlasting? And He knows his Bible. He knows, he remembers this, where all the people said, yes, amen, hallelujah. But now he looks and he sees violence and he sees destruction and he sees the people of God turning away from their covenant God, king after king after king, good kings and then bad kings. But now Habakkuk looks and he sees violence. And he says, Are you not this same God that David had? And then, secondly, he says, Oh Yahweh, my God. And that's the Lord. If you see it in your Bible, it's all capital letters. Um, that means that's the tetragrammaton. So, that's a great word to amaze your friends with. The tetragrammaton means the four letter name of God Yod Heh Vav Heh, or Y H W H, Yahweh. Sometimes you'll see it um, Jehovah. It's the same word. O Lord, covenant name of God, personal name of God. And then he says, O Lord, my God. Now, that's important because if you go back to verse 11 in Habakkuk 1, speaking of the Babylonians, then they shall sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men whose own might is their God. Their power is their God. They don't have a personal God. They don't have a a, a God who is a a person. They don't have a God who you can speak to and talk to and who does things and moves things. He is saying, this is Yahweh. You are not just God. He can say, Yahweh, God. Yahweh, oh, God. He's like, Yahweh, my God. And this is how we should pray. Our Father. He is ours. And then he says, my Holy One. Another name for God. So if we keep your place here and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is chapter 665. It's always kind of an easy place to remember because in John 666 is when. Um, It says many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So we know the 666 just coincidentally here in this verse, this chapter. But if you look at John 665, he says, Jesus is speaking to them. And he says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to me by the father. So no one can come to me, Jesus, unless it is granted to him by the father. Big theology in that, but just listen to what he's saying. No one, he's saying it to the crowds, no one can come to me unless it's brought granted to him by the Father. And then after he said that, and after some of the other things he said, many of his disciples turned back. Good theology has a way of doing that. Separating people from what I want to believe and what is true. And I can tell you this, and I'm sure if you've been in church long and you you've learned about God what you want to be true if it if it is not true you don't want to believe that what you want to know what truth is we should all want to know what truth and the truth about God is far greater than what we want to believe is the truth about God and his word is truth and we need to to be able to find it but after he said this many of his disciples his followers they turned back and they no longer walked with him so Jesus said to the 12 this closest intimate Group, the the. Harry, this is my y'all interpretation again. Y'all want to go his way as well? Y'all leaving me too? And then Simon Peter, good old Simon, jumps up, throws it out there. Lord, to whom shall we go? And we're going to look at Psalm seventy three real quick, and we're going to remember this line. Okay, to whom shall we go? You, and that's singular. You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and we have come to know Now see that faith is different than just you know we've come to believe oh, i believe it i'm pretty sure you know i believe she said she'll be there you know it's like one of those things but i know is different so we've believed and come to know that you are the holy one of god now, this is from Habakkuk, my holy one. So who is Habakkuk praying to? He's praying to God. But he also understands things about God, and we now understand more about God. So don't fall into the trap of believing the God of the Old Testament is the Father, and the God of the New Testament is the Son, because this tetragrammaton, this Lord, and I remember seeing this on a in a, a printed Uh, seminary notes the professor gave out and I remember looking at it and going, is that right? And it said this, Jesus is Yahweh. And I was like, (laughs) I just remember the first time I saw it. It was like, wait a second. Is Jesus God? Yes. Is the Father God? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yes. Is Yahweh God? Yes. The Lord, Yahweh, our God is one? Yes. Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Yes. Father, Yahweh, Son, Yahweh, Holy Spirit, Yahweh. Who's speaking in the garden? Who's walking in the garden? Yahweh. But probably the Son of God manifesting Himself pre-incarnate in the garden, in the bush, the angel of the Lord, all these things. As we are told repeatedly in the New Testament, if you look at the Old Testament, even the rock that was struck by Moses The rock that followed them, it says even, the rock was Jesus Christ. So, Habakkuk is praying to God. He's praying to Jesus. My Holy One. And then he says this, we shall not die. So He's got a little confidence in there. We shall not die. But he doesn't understand. Because there's a king that's supposed to come that's been prophesied and he will rule the nations. But if you take us all out and you kill everybody, then that, how's that supposed to happen? So something's going on here that I can't quite understand. And then back in Habakkuk, he says, "Oh Yahweh, you have, and he does a little poetry thing here, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Now in Deuteronomy 32, as Moses is being told, um, you, you're not going into the promised land. Because you struck the rock. You now you think about it. It's like, why did he make such a big deal about striking the rock? The rock was Christ. Only a father can say to strike the rock. Moses strikes the rock out of, out of anger the second time. And in his psalm that Moses writes, as Joshua's about to lead, the people are going to go in. Moses is going to go up the mountain and be taken by God. Moses calls God the rock. The rock of salvation. And that when God's people in the desert forsook him, Moses writes about that time in the past, and he says, they forgot the rock that fathered them. They forgot the God who gave them birth. And so what Habakkuk and the Holy Spirit is saying to us is we cannot and we must not forget a rock, Jesus Christ. The wise man built his life. He built his house on the rock of Christ Jesus. So when the winds came... When the trials come, you're able to stand. Not like your your house is built on sand, and these winds come and it knocks it down. Now we'll, that's what you're feeling when you're have if your rock, if your life, if you're built on the rock of Christ Jesus. And storms come as they do, and shingles are ripped off, and things get frozen and who knows what's happening. But the house is there, and you shall stand. And when you've done everything, you stand firm. But you have to remember the rock. On which you stand. We have to remember your God. Christ who saved you. The gospel which saves you. Remember who holds you by his hand. And so if you look at Psalm 73. This will be the, the last place we look here. And just hear how the psalmist does this. How this is. When we sing this psalm. Um, at times. But listen to how he goes from this confusion and sin to a place of, of praise. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. This is the this is um Psalm of Aphath. My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, because I was envious of the arrogant. Have you ever this is basically what um, Habakkuk is saying, too, he's not envious, but he's like, I see this evil taking place. But he's saying, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so he's like, and he takes us into his heart what that looks like. Maybe we've done it, too. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, it used to be fat bodies were Supposed to be, they're fat and sleek. We don't think of those two things. You got, you know, you're, you're fat because you're 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 wealthy and you got food. You know, we're so wealthy now that we've got too much food. But this is, you know, he's like their bodies. They're 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 hitting on all cylinders. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. All these rich people, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. This is Habakkuk. Again, he's seeing this violence. It's even more widespread, apparently. In Habakkuk's time, verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through all the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say this, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. The rich get richer. And he just doesn't like it. Because life for him and for the people that he sees that are good is hard. And so in verse 13, he says, you know what? All in vain. For no reason whatsoever have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in incense. Why? For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I'll talk like this, if I'll speak thus, if I said okay, I'm going to say this out loud, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I, I can't even say this out loud. But this is what I feel inside. And then he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it just seemed like a wearisome task. It sounds like Ecclesiastes. He's like, I'm trying to figure out how to understand it and it's just wearing me out. Until And it's the same thing for Habakkuk. God shows up. And then where does God show up for the psalmist? In the sanctuary of God. So when I went to the sanctuary of God, when I went to corporate worship, then I discerned their end. I figured out where all this is headed. You have truly set them in slippery places. That's different than a rock. Now, you can have on slippery rocks, but we don't go there. This is a rock where you're founded on it. Your feet are firmly fixed. But slippery places, you know, it's, it's cold outside. It's freezing out there. It gets wet out there. You've seen videos. You know, you, you, you laugh at all these people there, and they go down. And you're like, oh, he banged his head. It's like, should I be laughing at this? You know, it's all these things, and you could slippery places. And this is where they are, these rich people that seem to be blessed. These rich, And not that because they're rich, but they're rich and then they're being blessed with all this physical, worldly wealth and prosperity. But you put their feet in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. That's a horrible thought. This is death and what happened. And then, like a dream, when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse them, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, so his soul was embittered. That's such a good word, bitterness. If you ever like a persimmon, if you you know you get persimmon pudding, but they do something to it. It's because they're not ripe yet, or they are ripe. What's the deal with the persimmon being the most? You ever bitten to a persimmon? It's something. Yeah, it's like. There's nothing that puckers your mouth like a persimmon. It's the most puckering persimmons or puckering things. They're like, bitterness is like that. It's a a resentment. It's just like, you're bitter. It's like Paul talks about, you know, love is, you know, if you you speak to people without love, you're like a clanging cymbal. They say, clang, 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 clang. I mean, you can talk, you don't have love, and you're just talking to people. It's all it is. You just want to hear it. It's like, stop talking. I don't even want to hear it. He says, That's "How I was. I was embittered." He says, "My soul was embittered because I got called up into this, in this way of looking at life where I'm just like, I'm, I don't like it." And it wasn't just that he saw other people. I don't, you know, I, I, you can. I think we can all kind of look at other people that are doing well, and we're kind of like, I don't know. You can say good for them or or whatever or whatever. But then when you start to go. Why them and not me? That's where it starts to get you. Or or, or other situations. In verse 22 he says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. And I looked up this word brutish in, in Hebrew and in English to figure out where you get this word brutish from. And other words, other translations say I was stupid and ignorant. I was senseless and ignorant. I was foolish and ignorant. I was like a Beast toward you. So this is where he was, and this is what he did. And sometimes that's where we are, and sometimes that's how we are. And then he said, But nevertheless, boy, there's a good word, nevertheless, I am continually with you. Now this is where he's moving from this to confidence. The first thing was it's was like, man, they don't know you. They don't have you. You've got their feet in slippery places. I see they're doing good now. I see things now. I see things physically. I see things in a worldly way. I see, you know, we, we see now through glass darkly, we say, and stuff. But like you, you look at the world, you look at your life, and you, if all you do, you're living in a cursed and fallen world. How good do you expect it to be? And then you see people who seem to thrive quite well in this broken and cursed world. But it's because they've learned how to, how to make their lives resonate with the fallenness of the world, sometimes. And so you had to be careful. There was a rich man, and it's like, they're like, God said, Jesus said to his disciples, it's easier for a rich man to get through the eye of a needle. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get in heaven. Now, he wasn't condemning rich people. What he was saying was, to these guys, you think because somebody's rich, they're blessed by God. I'm telling you, riches can make some money as a root of all kinds of evil. you got to watch it. And so you've got to turn these things around. What does it mean to be blessed by God? You know, there's all sorts of stories you can tell about, you know, somebody got denied this. Somebody didn't get to go here. Somebody really wanted something they couldn't have. it. And then they look back on life and they're like, thank you, God, that you didn't let me get where I wanted to be. Thank you, God, you caused this to happen. Thank you, God. You know, all these different things you're able to say and see even in this life, the goodness of God in the land of the living, how sometimes we're frustrated and angry and then we see it. But there's other times when we're not going to see it, and you're not going to understand, and it is a fallen and broken world, and you have to just do what these guys are doing, and they say, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. And and this is what the psalmist does in verse 23. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You hold my right hand. As I'm angry, as I'm angry, as I'm like, I'm brutish and and boastful, I can just picture somebody. It's like, you're trying to just jerk your hands. Like, no, I've got you. I've got you, and then you guide me by your counsel. Even as I'm like that, you guide me by your counsel. And then afterward, you're going to receive me in the glory. So you hold me, you guide me, and you're going to receive me in the glory. This is where he goes. This is where he's like. This is how he's dealing with his issues. Whom have I in heaven but you? And Peter burst forth. Where else are we going to go? Who else has the words of life? And the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And Habakkuk will get there. He will finally get to that place. And then he says, And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now that sounds wonderful. And it is wonderful. I mean, that's a nice little way to end. You know what? There's nothing on earth I desire other than you. But remember what he's talking about. I desired riches. I desired wealth. I desired things to go well. I desired these things. But now I understand all I I really want is you. How do you get to that place? And I kind of want to say, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, really? And then on the other hand, I want to say, but I do know. I've been there too. I just haven't stayed there long. And in glory, that's where we'll be. That's, that's the only place we'll be. But we have to remind ourselves of this, that when these things are happening and we're confused and we don't see that we're able to even pray with Habakkuk. You're from everlasting. You're my God. You're my Holy One. You're my rock. There's nothing else. Help me, God, to desire nothing else on earth but you. So let's pray. Father God, certainly if you were to say to us, I will give you all these things. Well, Satan said that. I will give you all things. Just bow down and worship me. And the psalmist and Habakkuk see that that is what people have done and it's like, it would do something about that. And the psalmist is bitter and Habakkuk is angry but they both come to the conclusion eventually. The the disciples that stay come to the conclusion. Where else are we going to go? Help us to love you so much. Show yourself to us so deeply that we can truly, quickly be reminded and we would remind ourselves of who you are and that we'd be able to, by your Spirit, just be firmly convinced that you hold me, that you guide me, And that you will receive us all into glory. That there would be nothing on earth that we would desire other than you. And this we pray in the strong name of Christ Jesus. Who has given us all things. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen.